0: But my parents were, you know, into like this namby-pamby, you know, multiracial, one day we're going to have a South Africa where whites and blacks all hold hands together. I was like, no, black power.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Uh, Sasanke Omsemong describes herself and her sisters as born in exile and says that they spent their whole lives making our way, making our way back home. Always Another Country chronicles her journey from South Africa, through Zambia, Kenya, Canada, the United States, back to South Africa, Mozambique and finally to Australia. It's strong, punchy and funny, confronting the reader with a sense of the complexities of race and identity. And at a time when many around the world are seeking to create racial divisions, it carries an urgency and a sense of wisdom that's sorely needed. Sasanke has written for a range of international publications including the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Newsweek and Al Jazeera. Sasanke, I want to start off with your father who is the reason that you left South Africa. What was it that led him to become a freedom fighter for the ANC?
0: So thank you, um, Andrew, and thank you, everyone. It's wonderful to see um, people out. I'm always surprised when people actually show up to anything that I'm addressing, (laughs) so thanks. Uh, um, So my father uh, left South Africa um, just as uh, Nelson Mandela was being um, uh, sent to Robben Island, Um, part of the reason why uh, the treason trialists uh, were sent, were ultimately convicted and sent to Robben Island was because there had been dis- a decision taken by the African National Congress that uh, the 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 fight against racism needed to take another front and it needed, they needed to take up arms. So my father joins this new revolutionary army called Nkonto Sizwe, and when our ambassador's uh, father and other men uh, including Nelson Mandela are sentenced to Robben Island um, um, a small cohort of young men leave the country and go and get uh, military training. And so, in some ways, um, my my own personal history is very bound up in um, the idea of Nelson Mandela and those men who went to Robben Island.
1: And they got their training in Moscow, which was a detail I'd sort of forgotten the relationship between Ra- Russia and the ANC at that <laughs> That's period. That's right.
0: It was the time before it was Russia, when it was still the USSR. So mm. there, there'll be a few greyhead people who are old enough to remember that time.
1: <laughs> uh, do you, so he was uh, trained as, uh, as, as a freedom fighter, what I guess some people would at the time have referred to as a, as a terrorist, um, but you describe him as, as such a gentle figure in your lives. There's, there's no, no sense that you get uh, in, in, all, in your description of your, of your father, of him being uh, an angry or a violent person.
0: Look, I think the, th- the thing about uh, apartheid was that it made uh, decent people uh, militant. It made people who were opposed to oppression uh, uh, do things that they ordinarily wouldn't have mm. uh, and so those who left uh, South Africa left for uh, reasons of, of justice and so my father was certainly not a, an angry or, or a particularly gruff guy as most of the freedom fighters weren't. He went to Russia, he studied Morse code and intelligence, communications, they did uh, learn how to uh, shoot guns um, he then went to Tanzania and spent time in Tanzania building the camp that was uh, became Morogoro in the 1960s. Um, saw a little bit of action that he rarely talks about. They don't, they don't, they weren't, um they don't they never talked about that stuff mm, mm. Uh, and by the time my sisters and I came along um, they were in my father had made his way to Lusaka which was the headquarters of the African National Congress uh, uh, at the time because the ANC was banned a banned organization and so the community that we then grow up in is this really eclectic uh, cosmopolitan uh, you know group of people who are, I think I describe them in the book as firsts, you know, there was the first black nuclear physicist and the first black person to have ever lived in Norway and the first, you know, (laughs) and then come back obviously very quickly. (laughs) Um, So it was really um, a a, a very, our childhood was full of politics and the idea of revolution in its best sense, in the sense of revolution as aspiration, as freedom, as justice.
1: And part of that shaking up seems to have been the shaking up of traditional gender roles. You speak about these extraordinary cadre of powerful women that you uh, you grew up around.
0: Absolutely. I think Lusaka in the 1970s was uh, full of many of the ch- children who had uh, had left South Africa in the second wave. So there was the first wave, which was in the 1960s, and then there was a the second wave of people who left after June 1976. Uh, and so uh, it was one of those upbringings it's where Soweto, is Soweto, right. the, the Soweto, the uh, Soweto, the Soweto uprisings and and massacres, uh, massacre. And so in 1976, then this new wave of people that never really stopped uh, started uh, leaving South Africa. And so they were young, and many of them had. Um, attitude and they were loud and they were, um, would, would you would be kicked out of your bed because there's someone else coming at home. <laughs> so it was always busy, always noisy, uh, but very much an environment in which I grew up where women could do and be anything. Uh, the idea that an African woman couldn't carry a gun was Ridiculous. The idea that an African woman couldn't be dainty was ridiculous. The idea that an African woman so African women wear everything uh, because that's the environment that I grew up in. So it was uh, probably atypical, uh, but African women in lots of contexts do lots of things.
1: So there's lots of wonderful people in uh, in this book, but one that really uh, caught my eye was Gogo Lindi, your uh, your aunt. Tell, tell, Tell us a little about her, and also. About the role of a, of a of a an ideal aunt, which she seemed to
0: epitomise for you. So when we were little, I um, I have two sisters, two younger sisters, and uh, Lindy Mabuza is this um, very regal, very sort of. She she had just um, she had lived in the United States, very well educated, and she had come back to come to Lusaka because she was going to head up. The culture division of the African National Congress. And that entailed making, um, running programs for radio freedom. So Gokulindi arrives, you know, and I'm about six years old, and Gokulindi arrives back in Lusaka, and there's all of this excitement, because she's a very grand dame. Uh, she wasn't old, but she's always been a grand dame, and so she arrives, and she notices what no one else had noticed, which was that as the eldest, I was extremely jealous of my two younger sisters, and there was a new baby, and everyone was paying attention to the new baby, and Gokulindi was the only person who paid attention only to me. So we developed this very special relationship, um, and every Everything that I did or said was extremely special. Um, and we used to play all of these games, and she kind of implanted in me this idea that I could do anything. So the, the thing was that I was going to be in the Olympics. <laughs> this was before it was apparent that there are no no athletic <laughs> capacities anywhere around this person. <laughs> dancing? You mentioned dancing. Yes. Well. <laughs> um, so Gokulindi was very special because she was both cerebral. Mm. Very smart, moody. Uh, she, 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 there were a lot of people she did not get along with, but there was one person for whom she always had time, and that was me.
1: So, so is the thing about aunts that they can play favorites in a way that a mother never can. Absolutely,
0: and I and absolutely, and that's and that's exactly what sort of what she's always done, and what mm. I've realized now as myself as an aunt. But that's what Gokulindi did because as a mother, you can't do that. Um, And as an aunt, that's precisely your role, particularly in African societies where there are so many aunts. So there isn't a sense that there's ever going to be a child left out of being the favorite, right? Where there's lots of aunties and lots of uncles, there is always a special bond between two people. And when you choose one another like that, you as a child have a sense that you are special because your mom has to love you, but other people don't.
1: So then your family moves from Lusaka, which you talk about as being a sleepy town, to Nairobi, which, uh, as you put it, had harder edges. Uh, how did you find that transition?
0: Nairobi was, um, Nairobi was a bigger city, and it also wasn't... Uh a city where the government uh, had welcomed us in the same way that the Zambian government did. So in Zambia, it was like a second home. Kenneth Kaunda, who was the the first president of of Zambia, uh, was a remarkable man and very much still, you know, many South Africans consider him like an honorary South African. Um, and in Zambia and in and in Nairobi, it was a bigger economy. Uh, Nairobi was a faster city, uh, and it had a more complex uh, transition from colonialism to you know to independence. Mm. Uh, and and Kenya, as it you know emerged you know over the next decade, was really a a country where the elites. Uh, were incredibly corrupt and you could feel that even as a kid you could sense that this was not a society in which there was a deep investment in uh, and care for people Um, so Zambia was more chaotic but caring Mm -hmm. and uh, Kenya was a more structured and harder society but far less of a sort of national ethos of care for its citizens
1: you talk about the president's never smiling and that, the, the, what that conveyed to eventually. That's his, right, his that's attitude. right. Daniel
0: Arap Moy was a very hard and extremely corrupt man. I mean, Kenyans are still, I think, dealing with the, the, the consequences and the legacies of a very long mm. uh, uh, and over time increasingly brutal rule. So KK, as we called Kenneth Kaunda, uh, uh, had his own problems, uh, but, but hardness and corruption were certainly not his problems.
1: And as you paint the picture of your childhood, there's there's a number of people who hurt you. Uh, there's Praise Good, uh, who assaulted you when you were a young girl. Uh, there's another boy in Nairobi, uh, later as you're, you're a little older, who stole your bike. And in your telling of their stories, you, you spend a, a, a surprising chunk of time talking about uh, why they came to, be, to to be be what they were um, where does that generosity come from it, it's really striking to me to read the book that before the the we read about the harm we read about how those people became what they were
0: maybe it's being a South African uh, of a particular generation who understands that people are made they're not simply born and so and also being I think a South African of a particular class. So being middle class uh, provides you with all of these wonderful privileges and protects you in lots of ways that you often don't understand until you're older. Mm. Uh, and so while we certainly uh, were refugees, while we needed a state, both of my parents, for whatever reasons, had a very middle-class sensibilities about them. So they're part of this Long history, my father's family is part of a long history of African middle class people. So, African middle class in the South African context didn't mean money, it meant uh, education, it meant um, uh, um, having uh, gone through mission schools and all of that stuff. So, because of that, I think you do get a sense of how people are made. And so, my sense is always that when somebody does something bad to you, uh, in order for you not to own the terrible thing that has happened to you, you have to understand why it happened so that it's not your fault. And part of making sure that it's not your fault is understanding how a human becomes a human and how they can contemplate doing something terrible. So it just feels more logical than anything else.
1: Mm. Your family then moved to Ottawa where you talk about uh, the welcomes from some people but also the experience of racism in the schoolyard. Uh, tell us the story of the boy who called you an who African monkey. called me monkey.
0: an African monkey. So, you know, the thing about growing up in Africa, as I did, in different countries, but still nonetheless in Africa, is that you grow up always being part of the demographic majority, which means it doesn't occur to you that anyone thinks you might be ugly or that you might be not intelligent. You grow up in a context in which African people are clever and not clever. They're beautiful and not beautiful. Some people can dance, some people can't, right? We are, we're everything. Uh, and you take that for granted, there's nothing special or not special about African people. And then you go somewhere where there's so few of you, and there are very few of you, but the ideas of you are big, <laughs> you know. And so we get to Canada in the middle mid-1980s, and there are very few black people, uh, so we're a bit of a scene. <laughs> and um, very early uh, in the school year, we just started in a new school, we moved to Ottawa, and um, and I was on the playground after school and this boy called me uh, an African monkey and started sort of making the sounds and the rest of the kids on the playground who were mainly from my class uh, joined in. And I was very humiliated and I sort of ran away in tears and I get home and I tell my mother the story and she responds as a normal mother would, and she sort of comforts me, and she says, when your father gets home, we're gonna talk about this. And so my father gets home, and I tell him the story, and he's like, what kind of a coward child have I raised? You ran away? What? <laughs> so like, here's the freedom fighter, right? He's like, so you know, growing up, the, the, the thing was always that like, you don't start fights, but if somebody starts, you finish, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And all of that kind of evaporates in this moment where you're racially humiliated. And also you're 10 years old, So, right? So, of course, my mom has to remind the man. She's 10 years old. She's a child. <laughs> and so we, you know, had this conversation that night and the following... Uh, morning, my dad takes me to school, which is mortifying on so many levels when you are 10 years old and even more mortifying because you've just feel like you're attracting this attention because of what you look like. And now he's attracting even more attention. So here's his way. And my father's very tall. He's six foot five. He's a big, big African man, big Zulu man, if you want to use a stereotype, right? And so in we walk to um, school and he uh, we go and sit in the principal's office, and the principal is, you know, very nice, and I'm sort of shrinking, <laughs> and my father is sort of re- recounts what happened, and says, um, and so the principal is very sympathetic, and then he says, you know, but of course this is, you know, it's Canada, and this kind of stuff is going to happen, and my father is like, what? Not you have no problem that on your watch, as a leader of this institution. That my child should be subjected to racial abuse—you have no problem saying when well, these things happen. So he challenged him, you know, profoundly, and her, and he demanded an apology. <laughs> and uh, and so it happened. <laughs> and so my and so my, uh, you know, I'll never forget this, you know, sight as the as the principal and my dad uh, and I walked into my classroom, and my teacher came out, and there was this little huddle, and then my dad stood by the door, and. We go in and I stood at the front of the class <laughs> and the teacher said, class, yesterday something very bad happened and I, we, we need to all apologize to Sisonke for, for what was said. And um, in unison, all the kids in grade five at Blossom Park said, sorry, Sisonke. <laughs> and it was a wonderful lesson that if something like, if, if you are subjected to racism, it's not your fault and so you don't own that hurt. And it um, was really important for me because I think, and I see this a lot here you know, living in Australia, with so many kids who grow up here feeling like they're the only ones, or feeling like they're a very small group. And so for me, what was very lucky was growing up in a context where I never internalized racism. So now, when you know, I, I completely respect and understand that people get hurt by racism, I don't get hurt by racism because that thing doesn't describe me. So it just kind of bounces off, right? So it's wrong, but it doesn't penetrate. It, I don't get angry, it doesn't hurt my feelings, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it has nothing to do with me, it has something to do with the person who's, 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 um, who's got a problem with black people or people of color, or whatever you want to describe it. It's not my issue. Did,
1: did you feel immediately proud of your father, or did you feel mortified at the time? And did your pride sort of grow?
0: Pri- pride came later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How much later? A long time later. I mean, no. Look, I, the, my parents, always um, found a way to convey. They were, They always made us proud. Um, even in the sort of adolescent time when you're like super embarrassed by your parents, there was there's always been something about the way they conducted themselves and held themselves in the world hmm. that, um, that I admired and respected and was fearful of. And I think fear is very important for children to have, their parents. <laughs> and so I hope my children are afraid of me in the same way that I was afraid of my parents. <laughs> Which means they're afraid to disappoint. I, I was always afraid to disappoint my parents.
1: It's an extraordinary thing for uh, your father to have done, and to, for many uh, migrants to, to even go and see the principal, let alone to demand from the principal an, an apology.
0: So. Yeah, and that's, and I think this is why I, I always emphasise. Like, my parents' sense of themselves was mm. very sort of strong. So it was funny when we moved to Canada. It was the days before Google, right? So we didn't know where we were. My parents had no idea where we were going. We knew we were going to Canada. We had a globe. They showed us, right? Uh, Yeah, like that's like the USSR because the globe had the USSR (laughs) on it, right? Very ancient idea. So, so my parents asked at the Canadian High Commission, where do you think we should settle? And the guy at the Canadian High Commission said, oh, you have three young daughters. Saskatoon is a great place to live, which is completely crazy, right? And so that's where we went. So when we moved to Canada, we moved to Saskatoon. Um, and it's like so classic. because Here are these cosmopolitan freedom fighters who think they're so like wonderful and eclectic, and they're like always have you know drinking rosé and doing all these fabulous things, and they go to Saskatoon. So within six weeks, we were gone. My <laughs> <laughs> so that so that was very much my parents, and and part of my father's anger was, we came here for documents. We need I I need to be a person with a state. But I also am someone who did not leave South Africa for my child to be treated like this. Mm, mm. So racism was like the one thing that he, that he was simply not going to accept. Um, so that's part of what, why that was also particularly important to him.
1: You do not turn the other cheek.
0: No, no turning the other cheek in our house. <laughs>
1: uh, you attend uh, university in Minnesota, McAllister College in the early 1990s. Um, and, and you said of that experience that America made you a soldier. And you spoke about feeling a particular kinship with African-Americans, not with Africans and not with white Americans. Where did that sense of uh, camaraderie come from?
0: A couple of things. When you grow up uh, in exile, it disconnects you from lots of things. So you always grow up knowing that you're an African, but you're not living in the African country where you're from. And in many ways, it parallels the African-American experience. Profoundly African, uh, um, and yet living in this place where they are never fully accepted. So citizen, not citizen, right? And that's exactly what I was: South African, not South African. Um, so there's a, there's just a kind of, there was just a visceral connection uh, to lots of friends. But then also, my politics was 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 inherited. I got my politics from my parents. You know, I was talking about Marx you know at home because you know my father was a communist atheist right <laughs> um, so so when I was in university, I wanted to develop my own politics um, and so it was about moving from political awareness to political activism to really choosing what i cared about and how i wanted to be in the world and part of that is of course rejecting your parents politics so if my parents were you know into like this namby pamby you know multiracial one day we're going to have a south africa where whites and blacks all hold hands together i was like no black power <laughs> right so I, I very much embraced a kind of um, very angry, militant, racialized politics, which I'm really glad I did. I was very, you know, it was if it was between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, like I was on Malcolm X's side, right? right. And that was very important for me. And I, uh, you know, continue to respect and, and admire people of those views. But I'm also really glad it happened to me a long time ago, uh, because I think it's nice to grow older and to be able to soften your ideas and to be able to, understand how certain things fit into larger frameworks. So I was insufferable for a while. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you talk about the important work you did trying to shape McAllister College, the yeah. sit-ins working to get yeah. more African-Americans yeah. on, on faculty, uh, the chalking. Uh, and then also the poetry troupe. Tell us about Sisters oh, in Struggle. Sisters in
0: Struggle, we had... So we had this poetry group. It was very bad poetry, extremely bad poetry. We started performing the poetry of, uh, of others and then we moved into performing really bad poetry of our own, which <laughs> was, was terrible. We started as Sisters of the Rainbow. And as our politics hardened, we moved away from the rainbow, the multiracial, you know, oh, lovely, and we were like, no. So we kicked out the members of the poetry troupe who were women of (laughs) colour and it was just black and it was called Sisters in Struggle uh, because we were struggling on our beautiful elite university campus, we were struggling. Um, And so we were Sisters in Struggle and I could recite some poetry for you now but I think that might end this very quickly. (laughs) So yeah, it was. Um, so sisters in struggle was, but it, again, it was also like really powerful. And I, so while I make fun of you know my younger self a lot, I also think it's important to recognize what we were doing there. The kind of um, coming to consciousness, the performance of your identity, is something that I think lots of young people do today. We live in a much more polarized world. But I think it's important it's really important to allow young people to do that. Mm. It's, a, it's important to allow expressions of that and to allow people to be angry and to allow people to contest for space. I think um, too often, particularly when it comes to race, we're so fragile. Um, and particularly white people can often be so fragile. And yet, and yet, and in so many other ways in our democratic processes, we're so robust. Um, so, so that, yeah, th- that was sisters not struggle.
1: Good for you, too, in terms of your craft, right, as a as a writer now, to have uh, written poetry. I mean, poetry is spare and, and difficult in a way that you, you can't have extraneous words. You can't have the wrong word. Do you find you're a better writer for having kicked off as a That as a poet? is
0: so generous, Andrew. I really appreciate that, because the, our poetry was verbose. <laughs> it was not very well thought through. Um, but I appreciate where. <laughs> yeah, I try, I try. So you have
1: this throwaway line uh, just after you've talked about uh, this this phase of your life, where you talk about uh, later, m- much later on, coming on to bell hooks' ideas about radical love. Now, bell hooks is about as far away from sisters and struggle as I as I can imagine. How does that transition happen? That notion of agape, of of, of loving. Uh, Loving everyone.
0: So I think uh, the thing about uh, any time in your life when you are exploring ideas is that you are looking, you are searching, and the search leads you to to more and more refined sets of ideas, more and more interesting ideas. Uh, So I will always uh, uh, continue to respect even some of the bad poetry and bad poets that we liked, and I do respect lots and lots of ideas about black nationalism, I do. Um, but what then happens is that you read, you read and you read and reading this thing leads to reading that thing and it leads you to exploring ideas and it leads you to talking to more and more people. And so that's how I find Bell Hooks, that's how I find Nikki Giovanni, who is you know, still one of my favorite poets to this day. Um, and this is how, so you also, you also at the same time, find like Toni Morrison and you read her in this overly simplistic way, like all you love is the bluest eye uh, and you're reading her at the surface and then you go back and you read her, you know, and, and, it's, and there's so many layers and there's so much there uh, and you find other books. Um, so that's how, that's how you get there. How important
1: is Simon in this transition? You talk about meeting him and, and wanting him to be black and and uh, saying, you know, "What does he know about suffering?" Uh, because he's a he's a white Australian.
0: Yeah. So uh, we move. So we move back. I move back home. So I finish university. I li- fall in love with this terrible, you know, boyfriend, and I we move in together. My father is mortified. My mother sort of trying to bridge the distance between my father and I about this <laughs> living together situation. Very, you know, conservative and that's very traditionalist in that sense. Um, not in any other sense, but in that one is mortified. Um, and then I moved back to South Africa and it's 1997 and everything is new and everything is wonderful and we are building now, so we are in power um, and we have to build all these new institutions and it's an amazing time. And this, and I'm working for the Australian Aid Agency, so it was my first, um, you know, proper grown-up job, which was fantastic. And this handsome white guy walks in the door and he introduces himself and we start chatting and I'm like, oh, he's kind of cute, and I never really thought about white guys in any particular way, like cute or not cute, it just wasn't really a factor. And he's cute, and I'm like, hmm, okay, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he asked me out to lunch and we go out on the, these dates, and I'm like, what is happening with these dates? Am I dating a white man? <laughs> this is tricky. this feels tricky. This does not feel like what I need to be doing. you know I just was like totally uncomfortable. I'm like, this is the New South Africa. <sighs> yeah, I'm conflicted. So we go out for a while and then I break up with him because he's white and people and people often are like very lots of white people always imagine that. It's white families that have a problem with the black person. Because they have this sense, because it's this, this like crazy idea that like we don't that we don't that we want white people, which is kind of crazy, right? It's not it's like some black people do and some black people don't, but there's a sense that we want white people to be part of our families. So my family's fine. My mom loves Simon, but I am not, right? So I break up with him and I miss him a lot and my sister eventually like gives me this big talk and she says, like, if you are going to make this decision that you're not going to be with Simon because he doesn't get what it's like to be black, then the only person you will ever be with in your life is a five foot nine lesbian who's black with dreadlocks just like you. <laughs> that. <laughs> and that kind of was a great clarifier. <laughs> this idea, and I think it is in some ways a quite an... Um, an immature idea that you that we fall in love with people who are like us, who mm. understand every single thing that we have been through, um, and so th- that obviously um, has worked. And here I am in Australia. <laughs> and tell me about the
1: role of writing in your personal development. You have this lovely description of writing as drawing the venom out. Uh, how, do, how does it? Do
0: yeah, that? I think that um, for me, I'm I. I think my way into the world, and so writing uh, helps me to clarify things. And um, I also have, have chosen writing relatively late in my life. So I did all this other stuff, I worked in policy, I worked for a human rights organizations. So I really felt like it was important to be part of shaping the new South Africa. Um, so committed to the democratic project that we were and still continue to build today Um, and then i took a step back uh, a few years ago and thought that the one thing that um, i realized that lots of activists in south africa didn't do particularly well was right that they didn't reflect on what they were doing in the world and how It was or wasn't making a difference and they often and often in our newspapers we saw lots of stuff about politics and about corruption but we didn't see too much reflection on the situation of refugees or on social justice issues and so i wanted to be able to reflect that in into the public discourse and i also had a sense of myself as important enough that if I decided that I would do it, right, this is the legacy of having those parents, that I could do it. Um, and so it's been, it's been, I've been lucky, but also I've worked hard to be able to, to do that.
1: Yeah. So OK, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: Oh my goodness. I, um, as an as a eldest child and as a girl, I was full of this sense of not wanting to disappoint people around me and particularly my parents and so every time we moved I felt that I had to act like it was all okay and it was always of course okay because my parents worked very hard to make sure that we were okay but it often was also very difficult and I think that to uh, my teenage self and more importantly to teenage selves uh, in the world I would say that. that it's actually okay to um, to feel bad and to feel sad and to let people, especially your parents, know that you're feeling bad and sad. And I say that as a do- as a mother of a 10-year-old now. Mm. Like I hope that as she approaches that sort of really tough adolescent phase, that she feels like uh, she doesn't have to keep up a good face to make me feel like whatever it is that everything is okay. Because I really had. I took my my parents' sense that we had to move, we had to do this. I took it very seriously that they should be okay. Um, So, yeah, that's the advice I would give her.
1: What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: Something I used to believe and no longer do? Um, Hmm. I used to to believe that um, Australia had a really healthy democracy. When are you
1: most When are you most happy? You most happy?
0: <laughs> um whew. I should say something about my children cuz they make me very happy. So so cuddles in bed are very good. Um, but for the for long stretches, I'm probably most happy when I'm at my computer <laughs> and a really good vibe of writing.
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Uh, so I went for a nice run today and that's <laughs> a recent thing. Like in the last couple of years, I've really started... This happens when you get into your 40s, you're like, oh wow, I can't take this frame for granted, right? I can't take the fact that I have a body and it moves and does things for granted. So probably exercise. Um, I wish I were more spiritually attuned. It's all that communist thing when I was a child.
1: (laughs) Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Too many. Connoisseurs. Connoisseurs ice cream is an absolute guilty pleasure. Vanilla, absolute best.
1: Sounds like it would pair well with the running. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I run so much. Um, And uh, finally, before we turn to audience questions, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: It sounds so uh, cliche, but I will say it, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> it really is um, cliche, but if I've been I'm writing a book about Winnie Mandela at the moment, I'm just finishing up. And so I've been reading their letters to one another uh, as part of the biography. And uh, there's this wonderful uh, letter that he writes to her. she's She's detained. And he has no way of contacting her. He's already on Robin Island, so the kids are who knows where. And he, and he fi- finally, he's been waiting for letters from her, and he finally finds out that she's in, she's in Pretoria Central Prison. So he says, um, so he writes to her, and he says, um, my darling Winnie, um, you know, this is what I've done, these are arrangements I've made. I, I would like the lawyers to get in touch with you, blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, while the rest of the time while you are in prison, I will no longer refer to you as my darling wife we are now comrades, we are equals, and until you get out, I will refer to you as comrade. And every letter from then on is referred to as comrade. And that's just such a remarkable, beautiful way he had of being, of seeing and thinking, but also of then showing his respect and love. So, yeah, definitely Nelson Mandela.
1: Wow. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.